2 John for this morning, and if you do not have a Bible and would like to use one of ours, you can find one under one of the chairs in front of you, and you will find our text on page 1025, page 1025. This morning we are one step closer to Easter, and that means one step closer to the end of this series as we have looked at each book of the Bible, uh, one at a time, one week at a time, trying to track through the great storyline of the Bible. And as we come to this book, or the shortest uh, in the New Testament, uh, what we find is a time where uh, the New Testament church uh, is exploding with growth. It's beginning to advance across the Roman Empire. But we find those first generation of Christians, those that were the first to believe in Jesus, beginning to fade away from the scene. And as they do, uh, there are some wanting to uh, take their place not with the true gospel but with a false gospel. And the background of this letter, 2 John, is very similar to that of uh, John's first letter that we looked at last week. And you'll remember there was this growing movement of false belief towards the end of the first century and John is writing to curtail that, uh, that, uh, that, that set of false beliefs. He's wanting to knock the, the, the feet out from under this movement and help the people of God know that what they have already heard is the true gospel, that they have exercised true faith and they are the true people of God. First John was very much a broad letter meant to go out to uh, many different churches and Second John is the opposite. It is written to a very specific church. In fact, John provides a unique opening as he says in verses 1 and 2, "...the elder to the elect lady and her children." whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And many, on, first, on first glance, many have thought that John is actually writing to a lady and her children, as the text says. The problem is uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, it's almost as if he's proposing marriage later when he says, we ought to love one another. Well, that seems like an odd thing for John the Apostle to write, particularly at the end of his life, possibly even in his 90s. Uh, and so, uh, but more than that, what we see is a context of church life being written about. We see even the pronouns uh, being uh, in the plural, indicating a large body of people, not just this one lady. What we see really is John referring to the church itself, a local church, uh, as we often do in the New Testament with feminine language, reminding us that the church is the bride of Christ. Thus it is John the elder, that is the elder, the most senior, the most unique of all the elders in his day, the last of the apostles, writing to the select church and its members, its children. And what does he say to them? Well, simply this, he is writing to encourage them, he's writing to encourage these Christians to live in the love of God and to do so in accordance with the truth of God. Now that may seem like a very straightforward, a very simple message, and yet it's a very profound one because even today it's something that we struggle with. We hear people often talk about truth and love as if they are things to be pitted against one another, as if somehow if you're going to be truthful, it's going to be unloving. And yet if you're going to be loving, you're not going to focus on the truth. And what John says is it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. You are, you are called to love one another, to live in the love of God, but the way in which you know how to do that, the way in which you come to truly be loving people is by the truth of God. And so this morning, it is uh, in fact a very timely message from the short letter that we want to, to hear, understand, and obey ourselves. So let me encourage you to follow along as we read the, the rest of this letter uh, beginning at verse 3. 
Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commands. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of God to us this morning. John lays out simple things this morning. An encouragement for true believers and a warning about ungodly deceivers. Both are important as we seek to live loving lives uh, guided and instructed by the truth of God. So this morning, uh, we want to look at two things. First, we want to see this, that we are to live like true believers. That we are to live like true believers. This is what we see in verses 4 through 6. And we also see that John is picking up similar themes to his first letter. In fact, he's pulling out two descriptors of what true believers look like. What does it mean to live like a true Christian? Well, he says two things. First, we are to walk in the truth. We are to walk in the truth. John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, it seems as we think about how this thing is written, John, being in Ephesus, or at the very least very close to Ephesus, has encountered some Christians perhaps traveling uh, just uh, to go and see John maybe even, perhaps uh, just there on business and, and bumping into him as they sold out the church there. However the circumstances are, John has encountered members from this church to which he is writing and he is happy with what he saw. Christ's disciples walking in the truth. The question is, why does this make him happy? Why does this bring him joy? Well, the first thing we need to know is what he saw. What does it mean to walk in the truth? Biblically speaking, to, when, when the Bible talks about walking in this way, he's not talking about strolling down the road. He's not talking about hiking. He's not talking about anything that really has to do with feet per se. It's a metaphor for how you live your life. So what John is saying is this, to walk in the truth means to live in accordance with the truth of God. In other words, you're living your life in such a way that you're walking in the truth. You are hearing the truth of God and you are living it out. You are obeying it. Specifically, it's the truth that has been revealed in God's Word, which culminated in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. So John is joyful because he sees these Christians living out their faith. Their lives are consistent with those who profess faith in Christ. And this is good news because as John says, God Himself has commanded that we live this way. If you've read the Gospels, you will remember when Peter, James, and John, the same John who wrote this book, was on the mountain with Jesus during His transfiguration where 
the glory that he previously had before taking on flesh, something of that glory was begun to be revealed. And Peter and James and John heard this voice, the voice of God, booming from heaven. And what did it say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. What he says is true. That's what God's getting at there. He is proclaiming not just any, any truth, but my truth because he is my son. Therefore, what should we do but listen to him? It is truth that is to be obeyed. And John is saying the same thing here, that we are to walk in the truth even as God has commanded us to do, not just generically us, but I think John is surely thinking of he himself. All this should cause us to think of several things, but first it should cause us to think about the importance of the truth itself and how we are to go about walking in it, namely the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, a recent book that came out by a pastor named Rob Bell and how in that book he essentially argued uh, there was no such thing as a, as a literal eternal hell to which God would send people in punishment, but that uh, eventually, at the end of the day, God would send everyone to heaven. And we said that, that that just didn't match up with what the New Testament said. And since that book has actually came out and people have read it, it has generated a lot of discussion uh, online and in blogs and people are writing all over about it. You've seen him interviewed online. In fact, if you have the internet and you can do a, a search on YouTube, I would look for his interview with Martin Bashir's, where he pretty much gets torn apart by someone, as far as I know, who's not a Christian because that individual zeroes in right on the reality of it. And he says, now, Rob, just let's just be honest what you're doing here, you're changing the gospel to make it easier for people to believe. I thought, you got it right, Mr. Bashirs, you got it right. But now all of this critique that has come upon him, now the pushback against the critiquers has begun. That is to say, people are beginning to stand up and defend Bell and his book. And one of those people is a, one of those people is a man by the name of Brian McLaren. And he has defended Bell specifically in response to an article written by one of our seminary presidents named Al Mohler. Mohler basically said this, Bell's book fundamentally changes the gospel message. And McLaren's pushback, his defense of Bell was this, Mohler is wrong to say that he can know with certainty what the gospel is that Jesus himself articulated. McLaren says, look, communication is tricky, and so we don't have the... The, we shouldn't have the audacity to say this is the truth. And here's how he argues. <clears throat> it's kind of like when we play telephone. When, 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 when I have a conversation with you and we talk about something, I'm communicating with words, but what do those words mean? Well, they should in, in some sense mean what I want them to mean. The problem is how you hear. You're influenced by your political views, your religious views, your upbringing, what kind of education you've had. So even though I may be wanting to say the sky is blue, you're hearing uh, the sky is dark blue or light blue. Or uh, maybe you hear it in Spanish and you hear azul or whatever the blue word is. I, I don't know if that's right or not. Uh, Linda's shaking her head, so I'm vindicated. You know, uh, well, whatever it is, okay? And so what McLaren says then, okay, so you've heard me say that, but you've heard it through your filter. Now you pass it on to someone else who has their filter, and they pass it through their filter. And cultures rise and fall. We're 2,000 years apart. He says, Moeller, how, how can you or anyone else say with certainty the same gospel that Jesus preached is the gospel that you're preaching? He says, quote, our versions, mine included, that is, versions of the gospel, 
They are all then human interpretations of the gospel of Christ and the apostles. And human interpretations of the original message are not exactly the same as the original message. Some are more true to the original, some are less. But no articulation of the gospel today can presume to be exactly identical to the meaning Christ and the apostles proclaimed. He's saying you can't know the truth. Well, no offense to McLaren, but have you read the Bible? I mean, John seems pretty clear you can know the truth and you can walk in the truth. In fact, John himself sees what he and the other apostles do as being a codifying of the truth. Yes, we are freezing this in time and space with specific language that can then be transferred through the ages and understood by people everywhere. I mean, you know, you understand the only reason why you understand this is because someone uh, much smarter than many of us knew Greek well enough to translate the New Testament into English for us. And they keep going back and doing it and doing it because as English language changes, they don't want the New Testament to be misunderstood and the whole Bible for that matter. John is saying you can know the truth, you should know the truth, and therefore you should walk in the truth. Just like John himself and Peter and James, when we open the Word of God, particularly when we read the Gospel of Christ, then just like they heard literally on the mountain, we also should hear spiritually God saying to us, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. We need to pray that we would hear the truth again and again and pray that we would have the grace to live in light of that truth and not to turn away from it, to not make excuses about it, to not say, well, there's no possible way for us to don't know. No, we can know the truth because it's God's truth and He enables us to understand. Well, if we are to live as true believers, we not only need to walk in the truth, but John also says that we should love one another, that we should love one another. <coughs> John says in verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now we heard something very similar when we looked at 1 John, didn't we? And I don't want to repeat everything uh, that I said then, but do let me sum up for those of you that may not have been there, or for the rest of you who have almost certainly forgotten uh, what this poor preacher said last week. The command to love one another is not new in one sense. It's very old. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet it was repeated and emphasized to Jesus' disciples because something new had come. That is Christ himself, the Messiah. And now he is the one who defines what love looks like. He is the one who becomes the plumb line by which our love for one another uh, is judged. And so more than that, though, he says that you are not just to love your neighbor as yourself. You are to love one another. You are to love other Christians. You are to love my people in the same way that I loved you. So we are to go back to the gospel accounts. We are to see how did Jesus love his people and we are to imitate that kind of love. And what we said was when we go back, what we see again and again and again and again is the cross. It stands at the very center of all Jesus did, His life leading up to the cross and what came after in the resurrection. Therefore, the, the, the one thing that, 
that kind of summarizes or encapsulates the kind of love that Christ showed for his people is this word sacrifice. Sacrifice. He sacrificed for them. The standard, that, that is the standard. Philippians 2, the totality of what God gave, God gave up in order to redeem us, the humility that was seen in his sacrifice and his willingness to die. That is the standard by which our love for one another is measured. And Jesus says this is so important that this is part of your witness to the world. Jesus said in John 13, I believe, that people will know you're my disciples, that you're my people if you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's an amazingly profound way, thing to think about. It, it's in the best of 80s jargon. Uh, you know, it's heavy. It is heavy, man. It is a heavy thing to think about. It's weighty. And yet, in, 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 in the profundity and weightiness of that reality, my fear is it becomes ethereal. It becomes an idea that's never actually lived out. We just say, oh yeah, love is Christ's love, humble, sacrificial, and we say, okay, that's what I need to do. But, but it, it, it's such a huge and weighty thing, we don't actually think about practically what does that actually look like. I mean, I mean, you know, two weeks from now on, on, on a Friday, what does it look like to love one another sacrificially the way that Christ did? Well, I hate vagueness. I hate ethereal ideas. Uh, show, me, show me what it's supposed to do, okay? So what I would like to do is to, is to have us think through three very common ways uh, the, the church today, maybe this church, but maybe not this church, maybe some individuals in the church, maybe not others, but generally Christendom in the United States, three ways in which we commonly do not love one another, okay? So in other words, what I'm going to point out is three very easy, obvious sins that we often commit, either wittingly or unwittingly, that show we're not loving one another as Jesus loved, okay? Does that make sense? All right, here's the first thing. We display lovelessness by enjoying clicks. We display lovelessness by enjoying clicks. Enjoying a click or being clickish means that we find people that we like around us. We make them our friends in large part because we have a lot of surface commonality. And then we close ourselves off and we say we don't need any more friends. I've got my circle of, of friends. I've got the circle that I'm comfortable with, and I don't want to go out beyond that. We exclude other people, not just people in the world, but even the people of God. And again, we do so very often because they look like us, and it's easy to be their friend. Our personalities gel. Our interests are common. Now, we may tolerate being around other Christians. We even be, may even be nice to them, but we keep them at arm's length and refuse to be their friend when we're cliquish. Now, that kind of attitude does not promote the kind of love that's seen in the gospel. Often because the reason why we're not friends with them is in some way we're looking down on them. We're saying they're not worth my time. They're not worth my affection. They're not worth my love. And the gospel is meant to cut through that because the gospel cuts across the surface things that unite the rest of the world. I mean, you can gather how many thousands of people to watch a baseball game all rooting for the Tigers. 
Not other suckers that do that, but that's another story. That's another sermon. They're all rooting for the Tigers. They could be black, white, Hispanic. They could be rich or poor, but they're together and they're friends uh, chugging back brewskis together and, and high-fiving with hot dogs because they love the Tigers. And there's camaraderie there. And the Bible says, that's not enough. That's not enough. Go deeper. Go deeper than that. Go, go so deep that you realize the person sitting next to you in the chair, the person in front of you and behind you, the person that's listening to the membership directory across the page from you, they were bought by the death of Christ. The eternal son spilled his blood for them. That's why you love them. So it doesn't matter if we speak a different language, we like a different food, or we're Michigan fans versus Ohio State fans. Those things matter nothing. Nothing in light of eternity. The gospel cuts through that. And when we're cliquish, we deny that reality. We deny that reality. And so one pastor says this, by being, clickly, being clicky promotes our personal preferences to a position of supremacy that puts, and puts the gospel in a position of submission. We don't want to do that. The gospel says go out of our way to love those who aren't like us those who may we, have to, we may have to be patient with, those we may have few things in common with, because, frankly, that's the example Jesus set on the cross. Do we have commonality with Jesus? Well, we both breathed air. We both needed food to survive. And we both have the genetic makeup of a human being. That's about it in terms of the surface commonality. That's it. And yet, what does he do but gives up his life for us? How much more for people who are sitting across the pew with us, who exist in this life with us, who are his people, how much more should we love them? So ask yourself this. All of us should ask ourselves this. Who do we hang out each week when we gather together? Who do we hang out with when we're not gathering together? The answer to that may mean that something needs to change because we're not loving God's people the way he commands a second display of lovelessness is this, hoarding money. Hoarding money. Now, do not think this is about tithing because it's not. Yes, you should give to, to God's church because that's what God says. And if for no other reason, even if you don't get it or like it, God says do it and so you do it. That's, just, that's the reality of life as one of His people. And yet, and yet I want you to know that's not all He wants. He doesn't just want you to drop a, a check in the plate on Sunday and think nothing more about it. He wants you to show Christ-like love to His people, to your brothers and sisters. And that means very often, at least it should mean potentially, that we have to give up stuff we'd like to have in order to make sure they have stuff that they need to have. You understand? There's, there, there, there's one thing to say, it would be nice to have this, it's another thing for someone else to say, I really need to have this. You see, God blesses us with money, not just to spend more and more on ourselves, but to show care and love towards others. This is why Paul says that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because if you just amass wealth for yourself and, and, and live in uh, even by, uh, by, by our standards above the norm, now that's nice, that's comfortable, but where's the blessing in that? Even in the Old Testament, the psalmist says that God brought His blessing on Israel that they might overflow to the nations. 
So when God gives us things, when he gives us that promotion, when he gives us that, that, uh, that, that pay increase, when he gives you a new baby so you have a bigger tax break the next year, what are you going to do with that extra money? Are you just going to say, great, now we can get the bigger TV. Now we can get the nicer car. Now we can get the second house. Now we can just get that designer jacket that we want or that set of commentaries you've been whetting your appetite over. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> now what do you say? You say, God, you've, you've been gracious to us. You've blessed us. And frankly, we have our needs met, but we know there's some people who don't have their needs met. That's the gospel, isn't it? The one who was rich in everything, who, who deserved the glory of the world, and he gave all of that up to people who didn't deserve it, sinners like us, and therefore a sign of lovelessness, a sign that we are not loving the way Christ loved us, the way we deny the gospel is to hoard our wealth, the very thing that God himself has given to us. Well, there's lots of things that we could say. Let me just give you one more. Final display of lovelessness that is very common, very simple is this, forgetting prayer. Forgetting prayer. When was the last time you prayed for someone in this church who wasn't in difficulty? Think about that question. When was the last time you prayed for someone in this church that was not in difficulty? They didn't have an obvious need. There wasn't an immediate, oh no, this happened, we got to pray. When was the last time? When was the last time you prayed on a, on, a, on a Thursday for the people in your community group that you wouldn't see until Sunday? When was the last time on, a, on maybe a Tuesday morning you prayed for the people in your Sunday morning Bible study class? You prayed for the children's workers or the deacons or even the whole church? You see, loving one another the way Christ loved us means sacrificing something like TV time and Facebook time or reading time or anything else to get on our knees before God and plead for His mercy for His people. Jesus did this almost daily. Do, do you understand that? I mean, that's the example He set for us. He gets up early. He gets up before the sun rises. He gets up while Peter is still snoring in his hammock and he prays for him. Not because there's a crisis in Peter's life. He does it to prevent the crisis in Peter's life. You know, again, we could, we could mention lots of these things, but what have, have you noticed the commonality to all these examples that I've picked? All of them, all of them are things we do because to do otherwise would be an inconvenience to us. And I have to say, in my own life, and in my observation of others, and the testimony of others, the biggest way, the biggest hindrance to us showing love towards one another the way Christ showed it is this, we don't want to be inconvenienced. And that's pitiful, isn't it? That's just pitiful. When we consider what Christ has done, and that's the antidote for lovelessness, let me just tell you, is to, is to, is to remind yourself of the gospel. Whether it's in Isaiah 53 or Philippians 2, you're reading the cross accounts or, or Ephesians 1, whatever it is, you, you read the gospel and you remind yourself of what Christ has done for you and it breaks down the hardness of your heart. It melts it and makes it moldable and conformable to the image of Christ so that you will want to love God's people the way you have been shown love. It's not that you just sit down and you say, okay, I gotta love somebody today, I gotta work it up, how am I gonna do it? It's not going to work. Turn you into a Pharisee. It will. But it's gazing at the beauty and the glory and the sacrifice of Christ that breaks us. And it melts us and it changes us. 
and it produces something called the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever heard of that, Christians? Part of that fruit is love. Love for one another. Brothers and sisters, let us think long and hard about the Savior. Let us think about what He did and let us imitate Him as we seek to love one another. Well, we are to live... We are to live like true believers, but then secondly, we are to avoid ungodly deceivers. John gives an encouragement to his people, and yet he also issues a warning. He tells them about some that they are to be wary of. And he says that as true believers, we are to avoid ungodly deceivers. And what you need to see is in these verses, 7 through 11, is that he's describing these people almost in reverse of believers. So what does he say? He describes them in verses 7 through 9, but he says this, ungodly deceivers do not embrace the truth. They do not embrace the truth. Verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Now remember from last week that John has seen in these deceivers the rise of Gnosticism. Uh, it's in its... In, it's in its, its infant stages here. One of the key difficulties of Gnosticism with true Christianity was it did not get the incarnation. It couldn't embrace it because it was so influenced by pagan thought it held to a duality of all things. Anything material, anything matter, anything you, you could see and touch and feel, that was inherently bad. It was the spiritual. It was the invisible. It was uh, the, the realm of the spirit. That was always good. And so what do they have a problem with? Jesus, the eternal God, made flesh. That's what, they, that's what they couldn't grasp. And John says that they deny that happened. They deny that Christ literally took on flesh in the incarnation, that he really maintained his full divinity and yet took on full humanity. <clears throat> and John says if they deny that, they're a deceiver. They're a false teacher. They are wrong. More than just being wrong, they are a movement of antichrist in the world. They stand in direct opposition, that is, to the work of Christ and His kingdom. That's how he identifies them. And listen to the warning he gives. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. First of all, notice what these deceivers had done. These guys would not have said, hey, we're the deceivers. They would have said, we're the false teachers. You know, uh, in fact, they would not have even thought of themselves that way. I mean, more than just a sheep in wolves' clothing, they would have known they were wearing the clothing. One pastor and scholar, Lincoln Duncan, explains it like this. These people did not see themselves as evaluating the Christian faith and choosing to deny certain cardinal truths, picking and choosing according to some obscure principle. Rather, they saw themselves as providing a true and progressive interpretation of the whole over against the conservatives and the traditionalists who really did not understand the culture. So do you see what he says? He says they felt like they were the true Christians and they were just advancing the cause. They were pursuing the truth of God in new and fuller ways. In other words, just like John says, they didn't abide in the truth. They did not stand in the truth. They went past it. They went ahead of it. They went beyond it. John says they tried to be clever. And the result is, they're not saved. They're not saved. They don't have God. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This is what the truth of Jesus is all about, friends. This is why we go on and on about the gospel and we repeat it over and over and over again. And we don't just say new things about it. We repeat the old things that the Bible says about it. Because to deny the gospel, to change it, to tweak it, to change who Jesus is means you're not a Christian anymore. You've passed beyond Christianity and now you do not have God. Doctrine and truth are important not because we like to be nitpicky, but because life hangs in the balance. And John warns us again not to take truth lightly because if we do, we will miss the reward of eternal living fellowship with Christ. This is why false teaching is dangerous. It's also why John says we are not to receive such people. This is the second and final thing we'll see. False teachers are not, and deceivers are not to be received. They're not to be received. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now to fully understand what John is getting at here, we need to know something of first century culture. But before we get there, let's begin in the present. Some of you are looking forward to vacation this summer. What do you do when you go on vacation besides have fun? Where do you stay? Do you immediately say, where do we have family? We're going to stay with them and vacation there. Do you think about calling a big church in the city that you're going and saying, hey, we're, we're some Christians from a sister church and we would like to stay with some of your family we're on vacation? Well, I mean, almost certainly you answer both those things, no. I mean, you're going to go where you want to go on vacation. If family happened to be there, great. You spend time with them. And you, I'm just sure you would never think in a million years of calling a church and saying, hey, we're going to be on vacation in San Antonio. Uh, I know First Baptist has got about 1,000 members. Can we, you know, some of you guys put us up for a couple of nights? I mean, you just wouldn't think of that, would you? Why? Because we have this great invention called the hotel, right? I mean, it's got a pool, it's got an elevator, it's got crazy carpet and wallpaper designs that would look stupid in your house, but somehow they look great in the hotel. And they've got those vending machines that cost too much, and you just love being there, right? It's convenient, it's nice, you've got some privacy there. Well, guess what? They didn't have hotels like that in the first century. Now, they did have inns, they had public houses, but you wouldn't want to stay there. I mean, any immoral activity you can think of took place at a public inn in the first century. They were the equivalent, in many ways, of, of a sleep-in brothel. And so Christians don't want to be found there. They're places of disrepute. And so when Christians traveled, they would, in fact, look for other Christians with which to stay if they didn't have family to stay there. In fact, traveling teachers and missionaries would often go from town to town, and when they found Christians, they would be received by the Christians there who would take care of them and let them stay with them and show them Christian hospitality. Now, here's what John says. If a deceiver, if a false teacher comes, you don't show him hospitality like you would a Christian. Why? Because they're not a Christian. I mean, I mean that, that's the point that he's getting out here. They're not a real believer. So love them like you would an unbeliever. Maybe confront them in their, in their false belief and share the true gospel with them, but do not invite them into your home. And that's not just your personal home. That is the church that meets in your home is what he's getting at there. They didn't have big buildings like this all over the place. And often uh, churches looked like our community groups on Sunday nights, a gathering of God's people stuffed into a house. And he says, don't invite them in. Don't show them hospitality. Don't even give them a blessing at the door. Send them on their way. Now, what's he, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? But understand what he's not talking about is minor doctrinal differences. He's talking about the essence of the Christian faith. Although we think it's important as a Baptist church, 
uh, that, we, that believers' baptism take place, we can, we can coexist quite happily and will forever in heaven with Presbyterians who also believe the fundamentals of Christ and have accepted the gospel just because they believe differently on baptism and how to structure their church government. No problem. That's not what John's talking about. He's talking about those that would deny the very essence of the faith. Those that would say Jesus Christ is not fully God or Jesus Christ is not fully man, that God is not triune, that, that the gospel is not Jesus Christ brings you to God by what He does and it's all by grace through faith. That's what he's talking about there. And so John Stott rightly comments this. If John's instruction seems harsh, it is perhaps because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of men's souls is greater than ours. And because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is really an indifference to truth. What does John say? The truth of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is, is the matter of life or death with God. Therefore, it's not something that we are to take lightly. It's not something we're just to, to blow aside and sweep under the rug. We are to avoid false teaching. John wants to make clear that truth and love are not to be pitted against one another. They have an intimate relationship with one another in true Christianity. We don't choose whether or not to be more truthful or more loving in any given situation. No, we are to be God's people and to love one another even as Christ loved us. And it is the truth of God that shows us what that love looks like. We don't get to come up with our own idea of what love looks like. God tells us this is what it means to love one another. And what we have seen this morning is that both of these, truth and love, are an essential part of our life before God. It's only when we understand that, that we will not only find ourselves growing in a love for the truth, but with open hearts ready to be captivated by the love of Christ, that we likewise might love the way He loves. So brothers and sisters, let us walk in the truth and let us strive to love one another. Father, we're thankful for your Apostle John, your servant. We're thankful for his faithfulness, for his desire to, to show love and to teach others to do the same. And God, we do pray that we would see that all transformation in the Christian life, all change in us that would help us and be necessary for us to obey your commands does not come when we muster up the strength to do it. But God, when we submit ourselves and expose ourselves to the truth of your word, and seek the glory of Christ and find you doing the work of change in our hearts that makes us more willing, more joyfully obedient to you. God, we pray that you would do this great and wondrous, even miraculous work in our hearts because only you can do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.